My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 11, Niels. On Memorial Day weekend, I moved full-time to Fire Island, with only one task in mind, learning to be an American fag. My initial impression of Fire Island was, well, I found the scene rather silly and superficial. The songs they danced to, not to mention their conversations, were a bit vapid, to say the least. But after a couple of pool parties, some ecstasy, and a few bumps of crystal meth, I suddenly found myself waving my arms in the air to the same silly music as the rest of them. Mission accomplished. God and I have always had this rather unusual relationship that can, at times, be downright humiliating. You see, I have a tendency of stereotyping people with somewhat broad and at times rather rude generalizations. While God seems to enjoy sweeping my world about in such a way as to cast me as whatever stereotype I had so vehemently decried. The more severe my critique of said stereotype, the harsher God's humorous wallop. Yet again, I had to reluctantly concede, both God and Hans were right. A fun-filled summer on Fire Island was all it took for me to not only appreciate, but to become one of those superficial American party boys I had so arrogantly ridiculed. At the beginning of that summer on Fire Island, the prevalent reality was a bunch of affluent gay men, all trying to have as much fun as they could, while they could, because we were all dying of AIDS. But over the course of that summer, it had slowly changed to a notion of living with HIV. That year, people stopped dying, and the rumors began of the Berlin patients and a cure. Our new HIV meds had fewer side effects, and we all felt great, and we looked even better. The very concept of long-term HIV AIDS survivors, which had been an absolute pipe dream only months before, was rapidly becoming our new reality, and it took some getting used to. Giving up on one's future carries with it an unexpected wave of freedom and relief, so forceful you can lose yourself in it. Without realizing it was happening, I had stopped planning for, working for, or building my future. My life had become about living each day to its fullest, my non-existent future be damned. Our new reality began as an all but imperceptible undercurrent. But over the course of that summer, it had turned into a wild torrent, carrying us away with incomprehensible force and smashing us against the concrete wall of reality. By the end of that summer, the price tag for this short-sighted hedonistic existence was looming before us like a massive sledgehammer. I had to wrestle with my new reality of living with a chronic illness for years, maybe even decades. Holy shit, how am I going to do that? A strange notion of our being somehow invincible had begun slowly creeping into our consciousness. After what we had just survived, we unwittingly began to feel as if nothing could or would ever stop us. We felt oddly and inexplicably invincible. What's more, those few of us who had survived those two previous horrific decades of death and AIDS felt like God damn well owed us the ability to live forever. That summer I also interviewed for and was offered my dream job with a newspaper company in New York and would be starting later that year. 
Just before Labor Day, as my dream summer on Fire Island started drawing to its close, I received an unexpected phone call from a German friend, Niels, who was living in Los Angeles at the time. Niels had been in my very first circle of gay friends when I came out in Munich. We pretty much came out together. We learned how to be gay together, and we always enjoyed a very easy, comfortable connection. Of all my departed friends, I will always miss Niels the most. Niels had just broken up with his boyfriend and was alone in Los Angeles. He seemed lonely, and he just wanted to talk. We spoke off and on all week, and finally I invited him to come spend Labor Day weekend with me on Fire Island. I also received a call from his father, Dieter, who was quite worried about him. I suggested the best thing might be for Niels to spend some time with an old friend who knew him and loved him well. So Dieter bought Niels a ticket from Los Angeles to Long Island. Niels was one of those notorious gay men everyone knew of, but almost no one knew well. The first thing you noticed about Niels was, frankly, he was one of the most gorgeous men on the face of the earth. At this point, you might be rolling your eyes at my use of superlatives when describing hot men, but Niels truly was one of the most shockingly handsome men I have ever laid eyes on. In addition to his stunning good looks, Niels had gravitas. Gravitas is a hard thing to explain, or even define. I think you have to experience it. Like Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's famous non-definition of the word obscenity, I know it when I see it. The same thing can be said of gravitas. You know it when you experience it. And everyone who ever met Niels just felt his gravitas. Maybe they couldn't explain it or even understand it, but it was impossible not to feel it. Niels just had gravitas. Years later, I experienced Gravitas in a way much easier to explain at a B.B. King concert. Mind you, I've seen some pretty spectacular concerts in my day, with mind-blowing special effects, breathtaking fireworks, and extravagant costumes like Madonna and Cher, or the first European MTV Music Video Awards under the Brandenburg Gate, when I watched Prince leap into a Berlin mosh pit to body surf. But the bewildered Berliners just stepped aside and let him fall splat on the ground. But by far the most amazing concert I ever saw was B.B. King, an old man in a chair playing his guitar. There were no special effects or fireworks, but it was impossible to look away. You were compelled to watch him. You could hear a pin drop. Everyone was absolutely riveted. Why? Because like Niels, B.B. King had gravitas. It was a hard thing to define, but you know it when you see it. Gravitas can also be very intimidating, even frightening, especially for my generation of ditto-head Americans who have a tendency to despise the things they don't understand. See, here I go again with my sweeping negative generalizations, but it's kind of true. My generation of Americans just don't like people to be too different. There was a lot of social pressure to be just like the guy standing next to you. Niels was a picture-perfect Aryan god, with arresting good looks, a square masculine jaw, the most beautiful piercing blue eyes that cut straight to your soul, and that beyond-perfect gym body that so few of us can ever attain. But his arresting good looks were just a superficial first impression, and first impressions don't always last. Niels' magnetism was rooted in his self-possessed confidence, and it didn't hurt that he was hung like a horse. Niels was the type of man everyone passionately desired. 
But when he didn't give them what they desired, he often became someone they resented with the same level of passion they had once desired him. All it took for people to resent Niels was for Niels to do nothing. He couldn't be everything to everyone who wanted him. No one could. But when he wasn't, they hated him for it. Of course, Niels had also inherited his father's title of baron and had spent most of his life with access to millions. For his 30th birthday, his father hired the best pyrotechnic company in the world and gifted Niels a fireworks display over Cape Town Harbor in South Africa, where they were living at the time. Niels had lived everyone's fantasy life, but from the moment he got off the ferry, I could see something was seriously wrong. Though suddenly, I was the second most popular man on the island, accompanying the most popular man. Niels had raised the value of my stock considerably. Everyone wanted to meet him, but we were far too deep in the task of catching up on years of not seeing each other to notice anyone else. It was, however, hard to miss how people reacted to Niels, and of course, we talked about that too. Honest to God, if I ever wanted to find Niels in a crowd, all I had to do was close my eyes and listen for where the crowd was quiet, and that's where Niels would be, with everyone silently staring at him. Niels hated it. He always had. He certainly wasn't above using his looks to get what he wanted, and why not? He had to pay the price socially whether he enjoyed the benefits or not. I was by no means unattractive at that age, but I was far from his league. My friendship with Niels taught me that being everyone's fantasy man was no picnic, at least it wasn't for Niels. For him, it had always been more of a source of pain and loneliness than joy and pleasure. It was very hard for Niels to meet people because he simply couldn't trust them. I had a short list of friends with whom no matter how much time had passed or how much had occurred in our lives, we could simply pick up right where we left off as if we had never been apart at all. Sadly, they're gone now, but Niels and I always enjoyed that kind of friendship. We spent most of our time that weekend hanging out by the pool or walking along the beach and boardwalks. Niels and I communicated the same way my mom and I did. We juggled multiple conversations at once, both of us talking and listening at the same time. We communicated with words, or with simple gestures, or a glance indicating someone or something we needed to discuss later when this conversation was finished, or when that particular subject was out of earshot. We slipped between English and German, depending on who was listening, which language was more clearly to the point, intentionally ambiguous, or just plain more fun. We communicated like this the entire weekend. After a year of trying to puzzle out the social mores in America, trying to impress or alter my behavior to please people I didn't understand, being with Niels gave my soul a huge sigh of relief. All expectations or social anxieties between Niels and I had long since vanished. With Niels, I could just relax, be myself, and know he loved me for it. I had mentioned I was rereading our favorite novel, Herman Hesse's Damien, so Niels also reread it on the flight out, and we discussed it in length when he arrived. Hermann Hesse was exiled to Switzerland for opposing Hitler. Then, after World War II in 1946, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for his brilliantly inspiring books on coming of age and human enlightenment. The Russians have a saying, simplicity is the sister of genius, a brilliant phrase whose concept sadly eludes most Russians I've ever met, and for that matter, many Americans as well. Oftentimes, humans launch Machiavellian campaigns to hide their most basic, primal inner selves. 
They're not attempting to hide their primal simplicity from everyone else. They're trying to deceive themselves by denying their own most basic primal core, trying to play a role rather than being confident in their true selves. As Hess put it, man's primal urges are at the same time the most powerful determinants of our behavior and the least understood. As a result, there's something very compelling about those people who do understand and embrace who they really are and make no effort to hide it. Paraphrasing Hess, those who don't understand this intuitively recognize it in others and are simultaneously drawn to them while being superficially repulsed by them. Nowhere is this more true than with my generation of conformist gay Americans. As Hess put it, a whole society composed of men afraid of the unknown within them. It was impossible not to notice how comfortable Niels was in his own skin. People sensed that Niels had something they didn't, something they had been told they should never strive to attain. Yet he was a man who possessed it and seemed comfortable having it. People seemed drawn to him and intimidated by him in equal measure. I think that's what people resented about Niels. He knew his primal man within, and he embraced it. His primal simplicity ironically came across as noble sophistication and was intensely intimidating to those who didn't understand it. Niels had what Herman Hesse referred to as the mark of Cain. Over the years, I had seen how people loved Niels almost as much as they loved to hate him, unless he immediately gave everyone what they wanted, which wasn't possible. They usually came to resent him. In Herman Hesse's words, here was a man with something in his face that frightened the others. You can guess, no, you can be quite certain that it was not a mark on his forehead like a postmark. Life is hardly ever as clear and straightforward as that. It is much more likely that he struck people as faintly sinister, perhaps a little more intellect and boldness in his looks than people were used to. The man was powerful. You would approach him only with awe. He had a sign. You could explain this any way you wished, and people always want what is agreeable to them and puts them in the right. They were afraid of Cain. He bore the sign. So they did not interpret the sign for what it was, a mark of distinction, but as its opposite. They said, those fellows with the sign, they're a strange lot. And indeed they were. People with courage and character always seem sinister to the rest. Niels was never able to change his character or his mark of distinction. I don't think that would have been possible for him. But this truly bore down on him. He was lonely, very lonely, and he was tired. That weekend, as we discussed our favorite novel, Niels and I joked, as we had many times before, which one of us was Damien, the mentor, and which Sinclair, his student. It was generous of him to play along with his joke, as it had always been clear to me that he was the mentor and I his student. Niels had always been my teacher. Hell, Niels was even the one who taught me to shave properly after that first night we spent together a hundred years before when we were both just young pups. One evening, while walking along the beach, Niels told me he didn't have a desire to live any longer. He was afraid that nothing in his future would turn out to be anywhere near as glorious as his past. He quite simply didn't want to go on anymore. He wasn't depressed, he explained just tired. His life from this point forward was going to require so much work and yield so little return in comparison to the fairy tale existence he had always enjoyed. He was, he wrongly thought, right at the age where he was beginning to lose his looks, and for the first time in his life, 
He had to worry about money. The family fortune had been lost. Niels was afraid he had no marketable skills and no way to support himself. He had been a model off and on, but he hadn't saved anything. He never thought he had to. He wasn't contemplating suicide. He just didn't want to keep living. I tried to convince him. We should picture in our minds the two of us as happy, eccentric old men. But he just wasn't having it. He patiently let me try to change his mind. But I finally understood. He wasn't soliciting my advice. He was simply informing his close friend of his decision. And if Niels willed his own death, I knew it couldn't be far off. The middle of Labor Day weekend, Princess Diana was killed, and we were devastated. Princess Diana was our patron saint. She had changed the world for those of us living with HIV-AIDS. At one point during the night, I slipped away from the dance floor, went to the beach, and had a good long cry for this miraculous woman, whom I had had the great honor of meeting only a few weeks before. I got to witness how the people's princess, armed with nothing more than kindness and love, jolted the world's consciousness, and created a new world of acceptance and compassion for those of us living with HIV-AIDS, a world that before her had been unimaginable. That morning, as Niels and I found our way home after dancing all night, we were amazed to see literally dozens of Welsh flags flying over houses all over the island. The Welsh flag was the appropriate flag to fly on that particular morning, but how the hell had they gotten them so quickly, we wondered. There hadn't been time to get them from the mainland. The first morning ferry hadn't even arrived yet. Monday evening, after most of the Labor Day revelers had gone back to the city, Niels and I wanted to go out dancing. The club scene on Fire Island is on any day pretty limited. But on a Monday night, after the summer's final party weekend, it was dead. When we walked into the club, there were only about a dozen people there. The music was the usual 90s, silly, frilly, superficial American stuff that neither Niels nor I cared for. Tra-la-la, we're beautiful, tra-la-la, less beautiful, tra-la-la-la-la, oh God, please spare me, I thought. Niels and I looked at each other, and without a word, just turned around and left. As we were walking away, though, they started to play a song we liked. So we ran back to the club, Niels kissed me in ecstasy, a lovely European drug ritual, and whispered, let's you and I have our own party. Since the two of us had pretty much ignored the rest of the world the entire weekend, this seemed perfect. The song they were playing had been popular in Europe a year or so before, and we both loved it. All the Americans left the dance floor because they didn't like Eurotrance. They called it pots and pans music, and it was kind of fitting that Niels and I were the only two dancing. Ironically, though, the club music kids play today is very similar to the stuff Niels and I loved so much. Just another thing on the laundry list of what I appreciate about the younger generations of Americans. We waited in vain for the DJ to play more music we could enjoy, and when none came, I had an idea. A friend of mine was a club music promoter in Germany and had given me a stack of German club CDs, so I suggested we take our little party to my pool and play our own music. I had discovered earlier that day that our landlord had tried to take advantage of us by charging a couple of propane gas containers for heating the pool to our account for his use. I was determined not to let him get away with this, and I only had a couple of days left to use up the gas that we were forced to pay for. So while Niels danced by the side of the pool, I cranked the heat up to body temperature, tangled myself up in pool noodles, and just floated around in the pool at his feet. We chatted all night and well into the next day. One by one, the few party boys who were left on the island stopped by, 
asked if they could join us. We said of course they could. Then they inevitably asked if they could change the music. And we said sorry, no. One by one they came, they asked, and they left. We just laughed and enjoyed our party. At one point, I remember with remarkable clarity looking up at Niels dancing with his eyes closed. My God, he was so gorgeous. He was the perfect man, and I was one of the lucky few to intimately know the stunning beauty of his soul. I thought about Damien and Sinclair's relationship, and I relived the friendship Niels and I had shared over the years. I knew he was in heaven dancing there by the pool. I knew much of the joy in my life came from things that he had taught me or we had learned together. In spite of the physical distance that separated us for the last decade, our spiritual journeys had kept us on the same path. The last decade I had been in Europe while Niels had been living in South Africa. We both moved to America about the same time, he to Los Angeles and me to New York. Watching him in that moment, I knew this was the memory of Niels I would most cherish for the rest of my life. We didn't have sex that weekend at all. We spent every night and most of our days tangled in each other's arms like happy little puppies. The next morning, I woke up and fixed Niels our favorite breakfast, fried eggs with melted cheddar cheese on top, homemade greasy hash browns and caramelized onions, and then I walked him to the docks. It really was one of those silly dramatic gay movie moments as I stood on the pier and Niels and I waved at each other as he sailed off on the ferry. Later that year, I would see Niels one last time. We spent New Year's together in Cape Town, South Africa at his father's villa. Right after New Year's, they sold the villa and returned to Munich. A few months later, while preparing for a business trip to Zurich, I received a call from Niels's father, Dieter. He asked me if I could read a poem at Niels's funeral. Niels was dead. But never gone. It wasn't AIDS, and it wasn't suicide. He was just tired. He was given a Catholic service in our favorite little Rococo church in Munich, the Sendinger Kirche. I had a meeting in Zurich that morning and flew to Munich midday to arrive in time for the afternoon service. In the closing pages of our favorite novel, as Damien lay dying, he tells Sinclair, Little Sinclair, listen, I have to go away. Perhaps you'll need me again sometime. If you call on me then, I won't come crudely, on horseback or by train. You'll have to listen within yourself. Then you will notice that I am with you. I often call on Niels, my Damien, whenever I feel out of place or lonely. He helps me feel right with the world. Oddly, though, I don't really miss him. Whenever I need Niels, all I have to do is close my eyes, and there he is, dancing, by the edge of the pool. This is for you, Niels. I love you. But you know what? Damn it. I was right. We would have had great fun being old fags together. You missed the whole daddy craze, and you would have been one hot fucking daddy. It sure is lonely, though, without you here, Niels. My name is Stuart Merrill. And I woke up this guy.